2030, the world population will have reached 8.5 billion people. And 75% of us will live in cities, posing major challenges for cities around the globe. The infrastructure must meet the strong population growth, public transport must be further developed, and the need for housing must be addressed. And on top of all that, cities play an important role in meeting the climate targets as set in the Paris Agreement. So as a result, cities will have to find creative ways to tackle all these challenges. And not all cities will be equal and there will be winners and losers. Investors can benefit by investing wisely in different real estate segments of cities around the world. My name is Marije Groen and in this podcast I talk with Tom Walker about the opportunities that sustainable cities offer to investors. Tom is co-head of Global Real Estate Securities at Schroeders. Tom, a very warm welcome. It's wonderful to have you. Yeah, thank you very much. It's great to be here. So Tom, at Schroeders, you consider sustainable global cities to be a specific investment theme. Tell me, how do you define a sustainable global city? Yeah, as you said, all cities are very different. And one of the difficulties we have is how we assess these cities. And really, I think that the way that we manage to do this is using data. Data is very much the secret, if you like, of our successful analysis. We use literally billions of data points to understand where around the world are the most resilient cities and then where the, there are the most environmental risks. And as an example of that, one of the databases that we have downloads about 20 years of weather history straight from the NASA website. NASA divide the world up into amazingly 26,000 separate grids. Each grid has three data points per day of weather history, and we analyze that going back 20 years. And so in that environmental database alone that we use, we've got over 15 billion data points. So that's one of the key areas that we like to focus on. Right. And tell me, Tom, how do you invest in these cities? So how do you approach basically this topic as an investor? Yes. Yeah, so what, first of all, we look at the underlying city itself and we look to try and assess whether that is, you know, a successful winning city that's sustainable or perhaps a city that's going to face more problems over the longer term. Once we've established that, we then look for companies that, that will give us the highest exposure to those particular cities. And that's where it gets very interesting. So, you know, for example, we might think that Singapore is one of the best cities in the world, but if we can't find a company that gives us exposure to Singapore, well, then we're just going to have to take a step back and say, okay, we'll, we'll have to look somewhere else. And so whilst we can identify the city, we also have to identify the company that can give us as much exposure as we want in that particular city. Right. And what in particular makes uh, the real estate market a good entry to invest in cities, would you say? Yes. Yeah, so what we're looking for in real estate markets is we're looking for parts of the real estate market where it's very hard to create supply. And then you have this ever-growing demand due to urbanization. And that, of course, gives landlords or owners of the real estate pricing power. And that really, we think, is the, you know, the magical ingredient that you need for successful long-term real estate investments. So if, if all these concerns that people always have every year, such as inflation, rising interest rates, recession, whatever it might be, 
if you are invested in an asset where it's hard to create supply and you have growing demand for it, well, then you're going to be in a more resilient asset and that's going to afford you some protection. So when we look at our exposure around the world, we try to invest in parts of the real estate market where it's very, very hard to bring on supply. So we own quite scarce assets. So let's take a, a closer look at urbanization, um, because I think urbanization is probably one of the biggest drivers for city growth, right? So do you expect urbanization to continue even after the pandemic? Because, you know, perhaps we've now also witnessed the disadvantage of, of living together with so many people in, in relatively a small area. Yeah, and it's a it's a fascinating question and, and it won't surprise you to hear it's one that we get a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how we think about cities, I think we just need to look back at history. We need to look back at events like the Spanish flu, outbreaks of tuberculosis or cholera. All these events have actually kind of led to increased levels of urbanizations because actually when these pandemics or issues occurred before cities have always created the answer whether it's sewerage systems whether it's more open space cities have always been innovative and then arrived at answers to to cure a solution uh, to cure the problem rather and and provide a solution and we expect exactly the same to happen this time and so i think what you're going to see is just the makeup of a city will change Arguably, you could see cities getting younger. More young people want to live in cities. Older people might want to be moving out, which could lead to more affordability for young people. If you've got more young people in a city, it's going to be more dynamic, more open-minded, more businesses will get created. And so, you know, we think of all those sorts of factors, but also what it will do is it will change the the type of real estate we want to use. You're going to see less office. You're going to see less retail. You might see more data centers, you might see more schools or apartment buildings. And so, you know, cities are always evolving, they will continue to, we are just in the midst of the latest evolution of a city. But the idea that, you know, a city is going to kind of just curl up and die or shrivel up is just not right. They are still the most efficient places for us to meet, to innovate get ideas, and then maybe we go back to, to work from home and, and, and try to monetize the idea or whatever it is. But we still need to come in, meet colleagues, meet clients, meet friends. And that will always take place, we think, in, in a city that offers interesting experiences. Right. Would you say, uh, Tom, that urbanization poses a threat to achieving climate objectives, uh, such as in the, the Paris Agreement, because after all, cities are a major source of, of CO2 emission. Yeah. And again, really interesting here. And I think what people overlook when, if you like, they kind of read that headline is that actually, if you look at greenhouse gas emissions per capita, cities are much, much lower than rural areas. And I always joke about this with uh, my colleague and friend Hugo, who I run the fund with, because he lives out in the countryside and I live in the city in London. And actually, you know, us, me living in London, I have a smaller carbon footprint because my children and I, we walk to school. You know, we can walk to most shops. Whereas, you know, if you live in the countryside, you're driving everywhere. And so actually, without cities we have zero chance of achieving the Paris Agreement targets. Governments around the world realize that it's where the most people live, so it's where they're going to get the most bang for their buck in terms of making people use public transport rather than using a car. So again, cities will be the solution to climate issues, and it's because of the efficiencies that you can derive from living and working in a city. Just a few kind of random stats for you, but if you live in an apartment, you're going to use less energy than someone living in a house. Obviously, also, as I mentioned earlier, if you're living in a city, you probably take, you know, public transport to work, you might do, you know, ride sharing, you might cycle, 
all of those have a material impact on your carbon emissions. Right. Such an interesting insight. I never thought of it that way, but maybe in that sense, also me living in the, in the city of The Hague is, is, is equally, uh, well, sustainable rather than, than living on the countryside. Um, so, so tell me, how can a city be sustainable, uh, Tom? Because, uh, well, maybe you can illustrate it to us by giving us an example of Amsterdam, which I understand is Europe's most sustainable city, according to the Schroeder's uh, European Sustainable Cities Index. So how does that work? Tell us. Yeah, it's great. And I'm pleased to see you've done your homework on, on our kind of sustainable cities index as well. So thank you for that. But yeah, what Welcome. we did was we looked at all the European cities and what we did, we've looked at lots of, of their policies and their environmental policies. And we've decided, you know, with, with piecing all of that together, We look at things like, you know, how much public transport is available in the city. What is their, you know, renewable consumption targets? What is the, you know, how many uh, EV charging stations are there? Single-use plastics, air quality, climate plans, carbon neutrality, a really long list of policies looking to try to, to see the future direction of these cities. And Amsterdam was the leader. You know, London and Paris were, all, were also good. But I think another city for me that always stands out when you look at this would be Stockholm. I mean, their first environmental policy was in 1976. So like much of Scandinavia with environmental issues, they are ahead of the game. They're ahead of others. And so, you know, it's really interesting for us and important for us to look at that future direction. And, and I think China is actually also another area where it's very interesting because, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I was asked to go to Beijing for a business trip. And when I was there, I was told, oh, look, you know, you're really lucky. You've arrived at a day when we can go to the meeting. My children have gone to school. Whereas yesterday, everyone had to stay at home because the air quality was so bad. If you go to Beijing today, there is no chance of that happening because the policies that the Chinese government have enacted have been so important and made such an impact that things have changed quite materially. And I think that just gives you an idea as to how much impact can be, you know, arrived at with the right policies in place. And that's why we thought that Sustainable Cities Index was such important research for us to, to speak about. Right. Um, so, so let's take a closer look at, at your investment strategy at, at Schroeder's. Which kind of data do you use to identify uh, global and sustainable cities and how do you collect and process those data flows? Yeah, so we use four databases to identify, if you like, the hunting ground for our fund, the right cities in the world that might have interesting companies in it. So I've mentioned the environmental database, which has that NASA data in that I spoke about earlier. So there we're looking at the physical risk to owning an asset in a city like Tokyo or Los Angeles. We're looking at the well-being risk to you or I if we were working in Tokyo or Los Angeles. Is it polluted air, polluted water? You know, what's that environment like for us? And then we look at the policy response. So we're looking at those three key areas, the physical risk, the well-being, and then the policy response in each city around the world. And we're then able to calculate a score for cities and then create a ranking. We then also have three other databases which help us navigate the best cities to invest in. The second is, the, is a transport connectivity database. So again, our theory here is that if you own an asset well-connected by transport, it's going to be more resilient 
than another asset. And I think that transport connectivity means that more people will be able to move in and out of that location, and there should therefore be greater resilience in the value of that land, greater optionality for alternative use. And what's also interesting about transport connectivity is that, and this again has been sort of proved in studies by Harvard as many as well as other government organisations, is that transport connectivity and that mobility that it gives us to access jobs, it's a huge contributor to social mobility. So, you know, allowing people to get to work and then access jobs is very important. We then also have an innovation database looking at how close world-class universities are to locations. Again, not only will these universities provide us with talented graduates, but they will also provide us with new businesses that get started up, which will lead to more demand for real estate. And then finally, we just look at the overall economic strength of a city. Is it growing? Is it reducing? Because again, you know, real estate is simply a proxy for GDP. So you really want to be invested in those strong economic locations because then you as the landlord can charge someone hopefully a higher rent and that tenant is very happy to pay it because they're creating more profit for themselves. So, so what is the role of ESG in this investment process? Yes, so ESG is is clearly, you know, very much integrated into our investment process. And so we've got the E, we've got the environmental database right there, right up front, contributing to us, determining which cities are which cities are the most environmentally resilient and then which are not. We've then got the social factor from that transport database, looking at that social mobility. And then the G, the governance, you know, we just think that's obviously kind of essential analysis for, for any company. You know, is it the right structure? Will they look after us as a shareholder or will they just be looking after themselves? You know, what's the board diversification, etc. So governance, I think, is, is, is very easy for people to analyze. The E and the S have always been tougher. But I think, again, using data we've identified and highlighted how we can use data to help us on the environmental and social issues uh, when we invest. Right. Now, it's one thing, Tom, to identify cities with a lot of economic potential. But then once you've done that, how, in which uh, sectors or in which companies do you then invest next? Yes. Yeah, so the next step, again, using data is a real common theme coming out here. Right. But again, <laughs> what we have developed is that every month, And it's, you know, again, more very useless information for you. But every month at about three in the morning on one Thursday, the last Thursday of every month, our Python script, Python is a computer software program. And what we've created is that it scrapes hundreds of companies' websites around the world every month, and it takes all the geospatial coordinates of their portfolios. That then allows us to see, right, if Tokyo or Sydney or Melbourne is a very well-ranked city, which company actually can give us exposure there. So again, data provides us with a list of companies that give us exposure. And then we bring the humans into the job. You know, us as the team, our analysts will then go and look at the identified companies, meet management, look at the properties, look at the demand and the supply, all the normal stuff you would imagine for real estate analysis. So it's a real combination of both data and then our skill as kind of real estate analysts, as investors that combine to then determine the value of a company And if we think it's attractively priced, it will go into the portfolio. If it's in a great city, but it's just too expensive, well, then again, we're patient. We'll just bide our time and wait for that valuation opportunity. Again, you know, myself and Hugo, who I mentioned earlier, we both invest in this fund. You know, we're really keen to be aligned with our clients. We don't want to just invest in a company because it's in Los Angeles or Seattle. We want to invest in a company because it's in Los Angeles or Seattle, but has an attractive total return and will then, you know, generate returns for us. 
Right. And I hope you don't mind me asking, but how is this approach then different from that of, a, so to say, a global real estate fund? Yes. Yeah, so I think the difference is, is in our use of data. And I think what we've been able to demonstrate, we've been running this fund now for over seven years, is that we're able to generate very consistent returns, beating our benchmark. So we're first quartile in our peer group over three, five, seven years. And we've generated returns of about 8% per annum compound growth. And I think what we've been able to prove to people is that by using data in a very original and differentiated way, we can identify the markets and the companies. And I think that's why we stand out, I hope, versus our peer group. Right. Now, now the fund uh, adheres to Article 9 under the SFDR uh, regulation. Could you perhaps elaborate a bit more on the approach and also what factors contribute to this accreditation? Yes, yeah, so it's obviously a difficult accreditation to, to have. And I think that what it highlights is how seriously we take ESG and how much it is integrated into our investment process. I think what I would highlight with regard to why it's Article 9 is that at each step of our investment process, whether it's analysing cities or analysing companies, we also have a series of exclusions. So if I give you kind of a sense of that in, in numbers, we start by looking at about 530 companies. When we have finished assessing the strength or weakness of cities, then that reduces down to about 250 companies that can give us exposure to what we believe to be the world's most sustainable cities. So we're reducing almost half of our investment universe just by looking at those weak and strong cities. When we've then identified the 250 companies, we then analyse each company on its own E, S and G criteria. And again, what we do is we divide them into quartiles and we simply remove the bottom quartile from our investment universe, which takes out about, about another 50 companies. So again, you can see that we are then left with high quality companies in environmentally resilient cities, well connected by transport, close to innovation and, and, and in strong economic areas, which then give us very, very solid companies. And so we're removing, you know, over 300 companies based on ESG criteria. And I think that's why, you know, we're able to call ourselves an Article 9 fund. Right. And all of that with great results, because over the last uh, seven years, you've generated 8% per annum, which is quite impressive, I have to say. What's your outlook from here, Tom? Yes. Yeah, so I think if I look back over the last seven years or so, and I look at what's driven the growth for this fund, I think about niche subsectors like the life science sector, data centers, self-storage, healthcare, last mile logistics, they've all served this fund very, very well. And when I look forward, you know, perhaps over the next seven years, I still think those subsectors in cities where it's hard to create supply will continue to drive this fund forward. I mean, as an example, one of the holdings we have in our fund is a company called Big Yellow Group, which is a very London-denominated self-storage portfolio. Now, if you look in London over the next three to five years, you can probably count on one hand the new self-storage facilities that will be built. But yet you've got more people moving to London. You've got more people moving house, moving job, getting divorced, people dying, all these very depressing things. Apologies for that. But they all drive <laughs> yeah. people to need storage. And so, again, if you own those assets in a market with more demand, low supply, you have pricing power. And on a five to 10 year basis, that gets us very excited. So, again, I think we will see the same types of subsectors doing very well for this fund as we focus in the strongest cities around the world. Mm. And, and are inflation and, and maybe rising rates a concern at all? 
Yeah, there, I mean, there's always a macroeconomic concern. And, you know, at the moment, everyone's talking about uh, inflation and rising rates, as you say, clearly kind of, you know, the pandemic is maybe taking a little bit of a backseat for the time being, but it may come back. What our belief is, is that we're not macroeconomists. We're never going to try and worry about what may or may not happen. What we are good at is picking real estate markets. And so if we've picked the right market with the right company that has a low level of debt, it's very well managed by the management team and the senior executives. It's in markets where supply is very hard to bring online then we will be protected through these volatile markets, whether they're going up or down. And I think that's exactly how we've run the fund over the last seven years. Resilience is something that we really speak about with this fund. I think that transport connectivity really gives us some resilience. And so that's something that we think has has fed through over the last seven years and will do over the next seven years. So, so Tom, let's maybe take a look at the geographical breakdown of the, the global city strategy, uh, because it was striking to me that you invest mainly in developed uh, markets, with the US representing uh, 53% of your portfolio, if I'm correct. Um, I was wondering, doesn't the greatest potential of urbanism lie in growth markets? Yeah, it does. And it's it, and it's very interesting point, this. We have been invested previously in R today, invested in some emerging markets. I mean, we've, we, we were invested in Mexico City till about 12 months ago when a company hit our price target and we disposed of it. If you can call China an emerging market, we're invested there today. We're very excited about urbanization in China. We've got a small holding in an Indian uh, real estate investment trust with exposure in Mumbai, as an example. So we do have EM exposure in there. But as you point out, it is the majority a developed market portfolio. Now, one of the issues with emerging markets is corporate governance. And whilst we can find very exciting cities, like our data tells us that Lagos in Nigeria is the most exciting city to be investing in in Africa, we'd love to invest there. But I really struggle hard to find a company that gives me pure Lagos real estate exposure. You can find companies that own real estate in Lagos, but they might also own a publishing business or a drinks business because EM have a lot of conglomerates in there. So where we can find that pure exposure, like a Mexico City or you know Shanghai, Shenzhen, Beijing, we will invest there. Where we struggle, then we have to take a step back. And so If you like, I don't need to take on that extra risk in emerging markets because some of the opportunities we can find in the Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle's of this world are so attractive. Right. We're getting to the end of this this interview and I have one final question um, for you, Tom, uh, because it stood out for me that Belgium is the ninth uh, most important country in the fund. Uh, and as you know, our listeners are basically from the Netherlands and Belgium as well. So just wondering, why is Belgium uh, an attractive region for real estate investors, would you say? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's uh, a question that is embarrassing me hugely. So fortunately, the viewers can't see me kind of going red right now because Yes, Belgium is the ninth most favoured country, if like we're invested in. But the honest answer, I'm afraid, is that there are two companies in our portfolio which are both listed in Belgium, but actually they don't really have any assets in Belgium. Ah, so okay. we've got a company there <laughs> called Shergard. We've got another one called VGP. And so they're listed in Belgium. So, you know, that's kind of, I suppose, one of the pitfalls of just looking at where a company's listed versus where its underlying assets are. So yes, I don't want to disappoint anyone. We think Belgium is interesting, <laughs> but we're actually invested. They hold assets in other parts across Europe. Right. Well, well thank you so much for, for clarifying that, uh, Tom. And, and thank you overall for your time and for this very uh, interesting and engaging interview. Thank you. Great. Thank you for having me. 
You listened to a podcast about the opportunities that global cities offer to investors. And I would like to thank today's guest, Tom Walker, co-head of Global Real Estate Securities at Schroeder's for his time and his insights. This podcast is offered to you by Schroeder's. And for more podcasts, please visit fontsnews.nl if you're located in the Netherlands or go to investmentofficer.be if you're based in Belgium. Thanks again for listening. Important information. This information is a marketing communication. No responsibility can be accepted for errors of fact or opinion. Past performance is not a guide to future performance and may not be repeated. The value of investments and the income from them may go down, as well as up. And investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Exchange rate changes may cause the value of investments to fall as well as rise. Issued by Schroeder Investment Management Europe SA, 5, Rue Hohenhoff, L 1736 Senegerberg, Luxembourg. Registration number B37.799.